This is uh, lesson 30 in our study of the Gospel of Mark. I've vacillated on my title many times, but I have the power of negative thoughts or the dark side of the second coming. If you've read the text, you might see a pun in there. By the way, on the last page of your notes, I don't usually have three pages, on the last page I have put the parallel text. So you will see Mark, then Matthew, then Luke. Uh, You may wish to watch that and consult that as uh, we work our way through the message. It it occurred to me, as, as I was looking at this message, it occurred to me that it seemed to have a kind of a negative slant and, and I realized that in this day and time, it's the power of positive thinking that comes about. And so I looked on the, the Internet, and, and what would you think I would find? But eBay has the positive attitude ladies' blue career church dress. And uh, now you see it's twelve ninety nine, folks, and only $9 shipping. I know you're going to rush out and get that. Don't ask me what a positive, I suppose that's a brand, isn't it? Beats me. Anyway, positive attitude, but a blue career church dress. I know you're going to want that dress. And I know there must be churches that sell that positive attitude dress because they sell everything that's positive. Well, when we come to our text, it's... uh, it's not really quite as positive. We want to think about success and not about suffering. But when we come to the subject of the second coming, and Jesus has finally gotten there in the, the development of the 13th chapter of Mark, it isn't exactly the positive message that I would have expected. I would have expected something like John 14, 1 through 6. I'm going, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And, and you know, that's kind of a warm and happy uh, thought, one that we all embrace. I love that text. Or we could go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We could talk about those who have died and, and the way in which they will come and we will meet them uh, and then come together with the Lord in the air. What a great text about the second coming. And then there's Revelation 21 and 22, the new Jerusalem coming down. You know, why not go to something like that? There are lots of happy thoughts related to the second coming. And and frankly, they're not here in our text. This is a rather negative picture. And we have to ask ourselves, I think, if we are honest with the text, Why is it that Jesus is dealing with the dark side of the second coming rather than what we might consider the bright side? And especially this is the case when he is speaking to his disciples. This is not a message that in general is being spoken to the lost. It is spoken to the disciples, although surely in its written form, it is written to all. So our task as we come to this text is to ask ourselves the question, why is it that Jesus is so negative about such a positive subject as the second coming? What is there that we need to learn from him in this rather negative presentation? We should note that there are three uh, sections in our text. There is the first section, which is the description of the second coming in verses 24 through 27. There is the lesson from the fig tree in verses 28 through 32. 
And there is that uh, exhortation, be alert, in verses 33 through 37. Now, as we come to the text, let's keep a couple of things in mind which may help us with our perspective as we do so. This is just hours ahead of the cross, hours ahead of the time when our Lord Jesus suffers hell, or as I've said, our hell for us. Is that not right? Jesus is talking about suffering in the shadow of the greatest suffering that has ever been endured, and our suffering in the light of that looks rather pale. And so it seems to me we have to say, at this moment in time, the disciples' eyes are probably rolling in their heads. But after the resurrection of Jesus, the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus, the apostles are going to have a very different view. Because our suffering pales in the light of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, too, that when Jesus speaks about the second coming, he speaks in a way that is different from that of the prophets. The prophets are speaking of the coming of another one. Jesus is speaking as the one who himself is going to come. So I guess I want you to sort of put yourself in that sense in our Lord's sandals. When Jesus talks about this, this is not hypothetical stuff. This is the real world that he indeed is going to face. uh, And it will change our perspective as we reflect on it that way. So let's look at that first section, the second coming in verses 24 through 27. And I make a few observations. One, it says, or it begins, in those days after that suffering... And that distinction is made in in, uh, the other Gospels as well. So what is that suffering, and why is it specified as being somehow distinct from other suffering? I take it that suffering is the suffering of the preceding verses, the suffering of the great tribulation, and the abomination of desolation that has occurred in the context of that And so there is that suffering, as it were, the greatest suffering that man has faced or will ever see. And there is other suffering, as you see uh, spelled out earlier in chapter 13. There is tribulation, let's call it with a small t. There is tribulation with a capital T. He is speaking about the tribulation with the capital T. It seems to me that... What happens at the second coming is triggered by what has happened at the great tribulation and the abomination of desolation. In other words, this is God's response to what has just been described in terms of the great tribulation and the abomination of desolation. Notice that the second coming is accompanied, maybe preceded, but certainly in close proximity, with this cosmic chaos uh, that is described, the sun being darkened, the uh, the moon losing its light, stars falling. And uh, I look at that in several ways. I think of it in the light of Colossians chapter 1, where it talks about him not only as the creator, but the sustainer of all of, of, of the world. 
And it's as though man has said to God, we don't want you anymore. And God just sort of says for a moment in time, you got it. And, and literally all hell breaks loose because the controlling hand, the governing hand of our Lord is removed. If you look at the description that is found, and if you look in your cross-references, you will find that there are a number of Old Testament texts and prophecies which speak in these cosmic terms. And, and we don't have time to go to all of them. I want to focus your attention just for a moment on Isaiah chapter 13. In the context in Isaiah, you've got the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and the work that he's going to achieve for, his, for our salvation. Then you have the description of, of the, the, uh, the whole destruction of those powers. The particular thing in context, in this context in Isaiah, is the Babylonian captivity. And you remember that uh, one of the, the prophets says to God in effect, God, why are you standing around while Israel is in such deep sin? And, and, and God says in response, don't worry. I got my disciplining arm coming and it's the Babylonians. And the prophet says, oh, wait a minute, wait. They're worse than we are. God says, relax. I got that covered too. Because after I use them as my disciplining tool, I'm going to deal with them. And when you look then in Isaiah chapter 13 and you see this description, this cosmic chaos is, a, is accompanying the disciplining hand of God on the Babylonians for their cruelty and harshness. In other words, this cosmic chaos is linked to God's discipline on those who have misused and, ob- and abused Israel. Now, I transport that in my way of handling Scripture. I transport that to our text, and I say, the Great Tribulation is the focus of man's wrath against God toward his people, Israel in particular and believers in general. And so the abuse that has come upon the believers is now going to be dealt with by our Lord in a way that parallels Isaiah. Men have persecuted God's people. God now comes in judgment against those people. And so this is a, is a context then, given Isaiah 13, it is a context of judgment. And that is the main focus. And then, of course, there is the element of, of redemption that comes as well. Very interesting when you look at Matthew's account in the, in the center column, when it describes this, it says, there will be the sign of the Son of Man appearing in heaven. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. Now, that certainly says to us, the second coming is not secret, does it not? Everybody's going to see it. And by the way, if, if, the, if the sun and the moon are dark and the, and the stars are falling, I think that's a real attention getter. I don't think there will be anybody that's needed to say, he's coming and he's over there. No, sir, it's going to be global. Everybody's going to get the message. But all the tribes of the earth are going to behold this. And then when you come to Luke, and also in Matthew, notice it's it's the bad news part of this. In other words, the focus is on unbelieving men's response to these cosmic phenomena and the judgment that comes. Or 
to put it in one of my favorite expressions that comes from from a movie I like, this does not bode well. Only they say it a lot more emphatically than, than I did. But, but this is really saying we're in a lot of trouble here. So, Matthew says there is mourning. Luke says there is anxious distress and fainting from great fear. So this second coming is a pretty dark picture. Would you not agree? And I don't, I mean, it's literal in the sense of the sun and the moon, but it's dark in terms of, wow. Something horrible is going to be coming about for those who are unbelievers, who have rejected God and who have persecuted his people. The second coming also results, as we see, in the uh, calling apart, the drawing out of those who are the elect, and that is called the time of, of our redemption. And that's a wonderful thing, but my point is, it's not Mark's emphasis or Matthew's, or Luke's, the emphasis falls in this account on the judgment that the second coming will bring to those who are unbelievers. All right, if you go to that next frame, you'll see uh, the meaning of verses 24 through 27, parenthesis, as I currently understand them. Is it possible I might change my mind? You bet. Lots of others have. It won't be a great revelation if that's true. Or, in a few months, it's even possible that Tom Wright may disagree with me. He may disagree with me now, but I got this place. And and you know what? It's fine. It's fine. Because some things were not meant to be understood in nice, neat, categorical terms. And disagreement sometimes causes us to think more carefully about the text. If it does that for you, hallelujah. Okay. The tribulation of verses 20, uh, 14 through 23 is the great tribulation as I understand it. In other words, the first half, the first three and a half years is the great tribulation. The last three and a half years, as I understand it, is the day of the Lord. The great tribulation is the time when unbelievers pour out their wrath toward God on God's people. Great time of suffering. The day of the Lord is when God pours out his wrath on those who have poured out their wrath on his people. So you have those two different uh, elements, and they are to be distinguished from one another. The Lord's focus here is on the anguish that our Lord's return causes those who are outside of the faith and... It is also made clear that this is the time for the deliverance of those who are genuine believers. I'm going to cheat and I'm going to give you a little application right now because uh, I want to I want to make it clear that there is real application for believers and people of all time when it comes to the dark side. What does such a gloomy message have to say to us? Well, the first thing we need to say to ourselves and remind ourselves of is this. This is a dark text. There are many bright texts. Are there not? There is the John 14. There's, there's, there's Revelation 21 and 22. There are a lot of wonderful, I hate to use the word, happy texts, but there are. But what we see then is that we have to somehow balance 
the truth of the encouraging text and the good side with the dark side of this, and somehow we have to integrate those or hold them at least in some kind of tension because there is application that comes from both dimensions. Divine judgment, I think we can agree, is not only right, it is necessary. If there is no hell, then there really is no justice. Think about all of the cruelties that have happened and the sins that have taken place over time that have not really been made right. And that's a lot of, maybe it's most sins. But there comes a time when the wrongs must be made right. And if there is not an eternity, if there is not judgment after death, then when do those things get taken care of? When are they made right? Justice, in my opinion, requires hell. And, and uh, that, this text, I think, assumes that. The second coming assures us that justice indeed is going to be executed. And it's going to be executed rightly and properly by God. We do not know the thoughts, the intents, the motivations. We do not know the mitigating factors that take place in men's sin. God does. And so it is God who will bring about divine judgment. And the consequence of that we see in Scripture, like Romans chapter 12, those last verses, the consequences are we don't need to get justice in the sense of vengeance. I'm not saying we we don't use the means that God has for dealing with wrong. I'm saying it isn't our responsibility to bring about final justice. It's God's. And because he is going to do it at the second coming, then we can relax, in a sense, and not occupy our energies and our efforts in somehow bringing about that which is really God's responsibility and which will take place in the end. The other thing is this. We have a picture of the horror of men as they see the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they have rejected, And the time of judgment now is irreversible for them. Is that not motivation for evangelism? And when you look at texts like, for instance, uh, Romans chapter 9, when it talks about this delay and this time when God is working with the Gentiles, what it says is, sure, God could come immediately and deal in justice with the wicked. But he has chosen instead to deal in mercy by bringing some to salvation. And in the context, he says, some Gentiles, some Jews. God is going to bring about salvation. And if that is his task in the midst of this uh, revelation, then it ought to be our task as well. But there is a time when the curtain comes down. And we ought to be well aware of that, I think. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, again, speaks of the salvation of the lost in the context of this horror. And, try this on for size. There is a sense in which these judgment texts which pertain to unbelievers serve as a warning to believers. Or, put, put it this way. If God is going to come and bring judgment upon those who are committed and attached to this world and not committed to him, 
it would be a very good thing for me not to look too much like them. It's like me. <laughs> I remember the story where I'd come from. We had deer. In fact, we, it seems like we fed the deer. They were 25 feet out the back door of, door of my folks' house. Uh, and I might say I never shot one of them uh, either. But th- there was a, a fellow who had a cow in a pasture during hunting season. And he writes in bold letters on the side of this animal, cow. And, and it, it ought to be evident to you, should it not, why that was necessary? Why in the world a cow looks like a deer, I don't know. But I want to tell you, if maybe the cow wrote it. You know, if I were a cow, I'd want the world to know I was a cow and not deer. And, and so it seems to me that I ought not to, de- de- to desire to look like the world when the judgment of our Lord is coming upon the world. That ought to be motivation for me to say, whoa, that's them. I'm over here. Well, that may be motivation then for uh, godliness in, in our lives. Okay, let's talk about lessons from the fig tree, verses 28 through 32. As I look at this, it seems to me that we have to conclude one of two things. Either these words are the direct application of the immediate paragraph before it about the Lord's second coming, or they are the conclusion for the entire chapter and all that Jesus has been saying with regard to the end events, okay? As I read these words, I see them as the conclusion to the entire chapter, not just the application for the verses before. Now, that, I think, helps me at least come to terms with the things that our Lord Jesus is saying, perhaps in a more accurate way. If that's true, these closing verses really bring our text full circle. The subject that was raised was the fascination with the disciples of the beauty of the temple. And if we've learned anything, we shouldn't get too attached to that, right? The second question was, tell us, Jesus, the sign that indicates these end events are coming and, and so we can have, in a sense, our, our, our charts and we can figure out exactly what's happening and when. What Jesus is telling us now is, it isn't just that he doesn't know the day or the hour, or that the angels don't know it, it's that we are not to know it. We'll get to that uh, in just a moment. But it, it, it's a very important uh, point, I think, to bear in mind. Jesus is bringing this discussion full circle. Now we see his reasons for not revealing what they would like to know. Because it wasn't good for them to know it. There was no need to know uh, for them. The fig tree testifies with respect to the season, not the day, not the hour. So that when you see the leaves coming out, uh, it's saying, summer's here. (laughs) If you go back a little ways to our Lord's triumphal entry and the cursing of the fig tree, the tree was testifying to something that wasn't true. And that was part of the cursing uh, issue that took place there. So we should sense when the time is near. We should have a sense of the season, but not the day or the hour. 
Now, I have to admit, this is one of my problem texts, and I could spend probably a lot of time talking about it, but let me just deal with it briefly. Jesus says, we don't know the day or the hour. We can't know the day or the hour. The angels don't know it, and Jesus doesn't know it. Only the Father knows it. Open theology would jump on this like a duck on a June bug. Open theology says, oh yes, God could have known everything, but he chose not to. So it's a kind of an interactive God. And God's learning as things go along. He misses it here and there, but he gets smarter all the time. I know that's my version of it, but it's close, folks. Open theology is heresy, in my opinion. So it's not open theology. That's not what he's teaching here. It's not that God doesn't know. If you speak of the Godhead, the Father does know. It's the Son who doesn't know, according to our Lord Jesus. And it is not with regard to some open field of knowledge. It is rather with respect to one element, and that is the day and the hour. Some explain this, some great scholars, I suppose most uh, evangelical scholars, try to to explain this in light of the incarnation and what they are saying is Jesus says this in the, within the context of his limitations in the incarnation I, I tried it but I just can't I just can't hang on to it and the reason is how does God become less than God if Jesus is fully God and fully man then how can he somehow not be omniscient and know all things? I, that, that for me is a get off the train thing. And so I, I understand people who go there. I just personally don't find that satisfying. One of the options that I posed is the word to know means to choose. And the word to foreknow means to choose ahead of time. If that is the case, then it's possible that what... By the way, that's uh, uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, uh, verse 5, where the Lord is saying to, to Jeremiah, before you were born, before you were in the womb, I knew you. Not knew about. I chose you. And uh, then there is uh, Romans chapter 11. How can God forsake those people whom he has foreknown, chosen in advance? So, if that is the case then it may well be that our Lord Jesus is saying, this is not in the realm of my responsibility. Just as the disciples said, can I sit at your right hand and your left? And Jesus said, that's not mine to give. I think he's saying, this is not my realm. This is the Father's realm. And uh, therefore, the issue, in my opinion, is one of submission, not of ignorance. It is an issue of submission. Now, if you feel a little uneasy about that, so do I. But it's the best I can do. I'm just dealing with what Jesus says. But if at that moment in time he can say he doesn't know, i got to tell you this. Anybody else who says they do has got a problem. And, and that at least ought to be very clear. Notice the statement, Jesus' words won't pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This generation will not pass away. Three times it's used there in those two verses. And I'm still struggling with that, but it seems to me that what we have to say is this. A, 
We talked about God's faithfulness, didn't we, last hour? Isn't that what it's saying? God's not only faithful, His Word is faithful and reliable. We have our hope in the midst of all of these things. We have His Word. And that's why when false prophets come along and say, I have some new revelation, some new added facts. No, no, no. God's Word is final and authoritative and faithful. I trust and rest in His Word. And that Word, by the way, is going to be inscripturated in the New Testament. It's not just going to be an oral tradition or some secret knowledge of words that are passed down. It's in our Bibles. And God's Word will not pass away. Everything else, my friends, is slipping away. Oh, think about this. I I was thinking about some of our... uh, dealings in the Middle East. And and we go to a particular Middle East nation, we've probably gone to all of them, and we'll say, if you do this, we'll do that. For example, I wonder what commitments were made to the leaders of Iraq. We're gone. Notice? We're gone. I would say that some of the commitments we, we made are just as gone. Afghanistan, gone eventually. My point is this. When you get a new administration... When you get a new, a new election, the things that you promised by your word to do may not happen. That's not true with God's words through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can count on that. So it all boils down to this third section. Be alert. Be alert. I think uh, Ron's translation said watch. Some would say, stay awake, be awake. And it's, it's contrasted then with falling asleep. Three times it's found in these closing verses. Once in verse 33, once in verse 35, and finally in verse 37. And there are the parallel texts as well. Here's the purpose of our Lord's Silence about certain things that we would really like to have known or the disciples would really like to have known, but he didn't hold back. His silence on certain questions forces us to watch. Isn't that true? If you don't know, for example, when the train's coming, you better get there early and you better keep your eyes open. If you know exactly when it's coming, you're going to show up 30 seconds early, whatever it is. In Luke chapter 12, Remember it says that the servant who thinks, who concludes that the Lord's coming is far off, what does he do? He puts off, he puts off things until the last moment. When I get done with this message, I've got to go home. And Jeanette's coming soon. Yeah, you know what's going to (laughs) happen. My daughter called last night, one of them said, do you want the vacuum cleaner back? And I said, Why, are you suggesting something? I need a vacuum cleaner. I need a front-end loader for that place. (laughs) Not knowing causes one to be more watchful and more prepared. And that's why you have, for instance, in the military, surprise inspections, right? That means you've got to be ready all the time, not just on the appointed times. And so it is uh, in our lives, I fear, most of us. Okay, so what's the application of all of this? I would say this. 
there is an application to unbelievers that is very clear. When the text begins, it says Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked Jesus privately. My personal opinion is that Jesus gives the answer publicly to all of his disciples, but I can't put money on that. If he did give his answer to all of the apostles, then Judas was there. Just think about that. If you were Judas and you were there and you heard Jesus say these words, wouldn't that send a little chill up your spine? I think that this text today is saying to this group and anybody who reads this text, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, when he comes, friend, it's too late. This is the day. This is the hour of decision. And surely unbelievers should turn to the Lord Jesus because there will be great dread in facing our Lord as an unbeliever and a rebel against him. For believers, the question is, what does it mean to be awake and what does it mean to be asleep? Interestingly, it won't be long before Jesus will be saying to his disciples in Mark chapter 14, stay awake, stay alert, and pray so that you enter not into temptation in the garden. These guys needed no dose, didn't they? Every time Jesus came, they were sawing logs. They were fast asleep and really oblivious to what lay ahead. And you know, within hours, they are the ones one of whom will betray Jesus, the rest of whom will, like Peter, deny him or at least flee from him, abandon him. We see the implications of being asleep and being awake very shortly in this gospel. I think that Luke 21 probably gives us the best short version of what it means. Look at uh, 21, 34 through 36. It will be in your... Uh, text on that second page it says, but be on your guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life and that day close down upon you suddenly like a trap for it will overtake all who live on the face of the whole earth, but stay alert at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that must happen and to stand before the Son of Man. So I say this, A, no DWI, discipleship while intoxicated. One of the, if you look at Mark chapter 4 in the parable of the soils, the two great dangers were an adverse reaction and bailing out because of persecution and an adversarial relationship to Jesus Christ because of too much friendship and association with this world. Two things. It's exactly what we're dealing with here. So what Jesus is saying in Luke is, you really can't be a disciple of mine and be intoxicated with all that this world has to offer. And I really fear, I really fear for myself, for many, I fear that we've had one too many, so to speak when it comes to our alertness to the dangers ahead. And the very dangers that face a driver who drives under the influence are the dangers for the disciple who is under the influence. We don't perceive reality like we should, and we don't make good decisions.
Second is the no preoccupation with worldly worries. Some people are so caught up in this world, what we shall eat, what we shall drink, what the, you know, all those things that have to do with this age. We're just caught up with that and consumed by it. Jesus says, don't be. The third thing our text says is pray for strength. Pray for strength to endure and be ready for the coming of our Lord. Now, I don't have much time left, so let me just say, if you want to find a longer version of this, turn Luke 21 in reverse and look at Luke chapter 12. I believe Luke chapter 12 outlines all the major issues for those of us in terms of our readiness for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's brief, but it's pretty thorough. Also, I would suggest that we look at the book of Hebrews. In particular, I'm thinking of chapter 10. We ought to think in the first 18 verses of Hebrews of the faithfulness of our Lord and of his suffering for us. In the light of whatever suffering we must face, we must always see our suffering in the light of his. And that's why Paul can call it the momentary light affliction. Jesus' affliction was heavy. Our affliction is light. And we'll see that as we focus on the suffering and sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Now, when you come to verses 19 and following, I think it says some things that are very important to us. One, maintain fellowship with those who are kingdom-oriented. Maintain fellowship with those who are future-oriented, who are Hebrews chapter 11 kind of people who are attached to the heavenly home and who will hold lightly to these things. I have to tell you, this is one place where bad companions corrupt our morals. That's, by the way, a biblical thing uh, to, to know. We need to be associated with people who have the same mindset that Jesus calls for. We need to be with them. And we need to let them rub off on us. We need to be very careful about who our close associations are. And I believe that when we read Hebrews chapter 10, it also says to us, we have a responsibility one to another to create that kind of mindset, to model that kind of mindset. I could name names if I wanted to right now of people who have helped shape my worldview as I've watched their holding loosely to the things of this life and clinging to the things of eternity. Also from Hebrews, maintain a constant awareness of the reality of God's hatred of sin and of his judgment of it. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 says to believers, now I don't want to go off into all this stuff, but it says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Folks, that ought to resonate with us, should it not? That ought to resonate with us in the sense that we ought to say, I don't want to be on the wrong side of Jesus when he comes back. I don't want to be there. I want to welcome him and be doing the things he has given me to do. 1032 and following. Remember the faithfulness of Jesus in the hard times. Now, I have to say, this is a reach for us, a stretch. (laughs) When have we lost our property? because of our faith in Christ. 
When have we faced imprisonment because of our faith and testimony in Christ? We have it. So I'll move on to my next point, which is remember those who are and identify with them. Remember those who are suffering as though we were there with them. And my friends, that is the majority of Christians in the world today. With all of our correspondence, with all of our communication, with all of our technology, the one thing we really don't want to know is how fellow saints are suffering today. But we ought to. We ought to. Because that's where we could be. Someday, I believe, it's where we will be. And we need to be ready. Well, it is kind of a dark text, isn't it? But it seems to me that what we have to say is positive thinking and a positive attitude deals with the negative realities of life and of Scripture. We can be positive in Him. We can be positive of His faithfulness. We can be positive of the fact these hard times are coming. And we can be positive about the fact that He's going to come and put an end to it all. But we have to be realistic. There is a dark side of the second coming. And it seems to me that that's really important in the gospel we preach. When the Spirit comes, He will speak and convince men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. My folks, this, my friends, this is a vital part of the gospel we must preach. We preach to men that God's judgment is coming upon unbelievers and the only salvation is the person and work of Jesus. That's all there is. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the way in which our Lord deals with things that we may not want to hear. Help us to turn to him, for he alone is the basis not only of our cleansing and our eternal hope, but of our standing in difficult times. If there's anyone here who has not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus, I pray that your spirit would convince them of the things pertaining to your judgment, which are clearly here in this text and in many others, and that they would see that it is the Lord Jesus and his shed blood that is the remedy and trust in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.